morning. If you would now take a copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 will be our text. Here we are on the heels of our uh, national Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, this psalm was a favorite uh, of, the, of the pilgrims. They wrote about it. They saw a lot of their experience uh, here in the psalm. I'm not really going to uh, talk about that today, but if you're interested in that, uh, James Montgomery Boyce and his commentary on the psalms in the third volume, uh, he uh, shows from the pilgrims' writings how they saw a lot of correspondence from what they went through coming to this land. Um, Last couple of weeks, uh, it became apparent that this was going to be a, a little different Thanksgiving, somewhat disruptive of the normal uh, Thanksgiving traditions and routines. I spoke to several people uh, coming in this morning who, who shared exactly that, that it was, um, it was strange and disappointing and family canceling and not being together. And so um, when I saw that it was shaping up, and I was going to be preaching this Sunday morning, I chose this text to remind us of um, not just thankfulness in general, but the distinctive thankfulness that comes to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that comes to us through the gospel. And so um, that is why we land in Psalm 107 this morning. Before I read our text and before we... uh, consider it. Let us go to the Lord and ask for his help in prayer again this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we desire that you would be exalted and lifted high in our worship today. I ask that you would send your spirit among us, help us to hear your word, help us to uh, feed on it, to apply it. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, it is our desire that Christ would be exalted among us and that we would grow in your grace. And so we ask that your spirit would be at work among us in the reading and preaching of your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things and pray. Amen. Hear the word of God from Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. 
Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze, and he cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loved any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word, and he healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad, the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly and does not diminish their livestock. When they are diminished and brought low, through oppression and evil and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. I think we often underestimate the sin of ingratitude and the greatness of the failure to give God appropriate thanks and praise. In the beginning of Paul's letter to the church at Rome in Romans 121, we see that at the trailhead of the road that leads to destruction is the failure to give God thanks. Romans 121, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I would suggest to us this morning that the lack of thanks could be, and oftentimes is, an indication that we're started to buy into the lie of the enemy. It goes back to the garden. We see there, there was two lies that the enemy brought to Eve. He sought to deceive her about the nature of sin. And he sought to deceive her about the character of God. He enticed her to do what God had forbidden. 
saying that it would make her wise and give her life. And he sought to confuse her about the goodness of the Creator and her God. And one of the ways that I think that you can tell that you are being enticed and believing the lie of the enemy is a failure to give God thanks. Because if you don't believe sin as, as, as sinful as Scripture describes it, then you underestimate the greatness of your redemption and the mercy and grace that's been shown to you and the need to return to God in thanks for His wonderful forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption accomplished by His Son. If you fail to give God thanks, it's evidence that you don't recognize and haven't been convinced of His undiluted, undefiled goodness. His unchanging, always steady goodness that He has shown to us. Both in good times and in bad times and in all times, He is good. And His steadfast love is shown to His children, expressed to us. So this morning, I want us to consider the entirety of Psalm 107. We won't be able to look and parse out every line, but we'll want to see the big picture. And in doing so, in the first three verses, I want us to see in this call to praise and give thanks, the reason we are to give thanks. And then in verses 4 to 32, we get four pictures of redemption. Redemption is retold to us in four different images in those verses. So we will look at that. Then the psalmist in verses 33 through 42 brings us to a reflection on the Lord's power to intervene. And then lastly, the psalm ends in verse 43 with a charge to understand and to apply. So first, the first three verses. The reason to give thanks. Well, the reason to give thanks is for who God is. He is good. He doesn't just do good. He is good. But His goodness is then expressed in what is here translated as steadfast love. Steadfast love is a, an English attempt at translating the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed is one of the richest descriptions of God's love in the Old Testament. It's such a rich word that quite often when it is translated, it requires at least two English words for the one Hebrew concept. So, for instance, at the end of Psalm 23, uh, in different English translations, hesed is translated goodness and mercy or goodness and faithfulness. Here in Psalm 107 in our translation, it's steadfast love. It's an enduring love. It's a never-ending love. It's a never-quitting love. As one person has simply said it, it's a committed love. It's the Lord's committed love to His people. God's covenant devotion. His covenant devotion by which He has bound Himself to His people. And He stays bound to His people. And it's a call to praise because of this sort of love has redeemed His people from trouble. But what is the trouble that He has redeemed them from? Well, we're given those, those four pictures and we'll consider those in, in just a little bit here, but that 
for picture is to better illustrate the, the trouble of, of exile, particularly of what happened to the nation of Israel. Exile is a big part of their story. So Psalm 107.3 there says, and he gathered them in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. It's answering the cry of the previous psalm. Occasionally in, in the Psalter, in the, the inspired hymnal in Scripture, we see intentional groupings of psalms, and they were, were to read them in context. In Psalm 105, 106, and 107, it would appear that they've been intentionally placed in this order. 105 begins with, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, and so does 106, and so does 107. And there's a historical recounting of why God's people should give thanks. And 105 emphasizes God's deliverance from Egypt. And then 106, Psalm 106, in picking up that narrative, does also recount their rebellion, their grumbling, as they was a wasted generation, 40 years wandering. And that even after they enter the promised land and are established there, unfaithfulness, and idolatry and sin begins to permeate God's people. And God, through Moses, had told them, and you can read it in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, that once they entered the land, if they didn't remain faithful to the Lord, that exile was coming, expulsion was coming, that he would use foreign nations and godless nations to judge his people. And so Psalm 106 and verse 47 the cry is, save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. It would seem that Psalm 106 is a sung pre-exile in Psalm 107 and following through the fifth book of the, the, the Psalter is a post-exile where now the cry of 106, 47 has been answered. And so in verse 3 of 107, it says that the Lord has redeemed His people from the trouble, the trouble being exile, and He has gathered them from the four corners of the earth. It was the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. that was carried into captivity by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of, of Judah later by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, was driven into exile in 586 B.C. But this image of exile is, is beyond the historical context of God's old covenant people. And the psalm is written in such a way that it is applicable to all of us and to our context. Because life in a fallen world is life in exile. Particularly, life apart from God is exile. It began in the garden with Adam and Eve being expelled because they believed the lie of the serpent and rebelled against God. And so they were physically removed from the garden. And later, God's people were physically removed from the land. But it wasn't just the relocation and of geography, which would have been a terrible experience, 
It was giving them the picture that you are separated from the blessed presence of God because of sin. And so Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden and now there are angels with flaming swords keeping them away. And Israel and Judah had the temple in which was the Holy of Holies in which the sacrifices for sins were brought and their praise was brought to God where God dwelled among His people. Now they are physically removed from that. They're separated from the blessed presence of God. It's more than the physical loss. It is the spiritual loss. And this has come by God's hand and their rescue, their redemption has come by the hand of the Lord as well. And so in verses 4 through 32, we see redemption retold, this bringing back from exile with these four vivid images. It's to illustrate the Lord's redeeming love in action, His hesed in action, His hesed love. It's four ways of looking at the same reality. It's how the Lord deals with His people in their sinful plight. And it's to present a whole picture. It began on the land and then it ends in the sea. The first and the fourth picture. The second and the third particularly give this picture of bondage and sickness. Showing sin's bondage and sin's corruption. So let's dive in a little bit to these pictures here, beginning with the wanderers in verses 4 through 9. Those wandering in a, in a desert wasteland. And it's, it's a simple lesson for us that living in exile because of sin is like being lost in a desert and not knowing your way. This is what life is like in a fallen world apart from being reconciled to God. And the point is to be clear that Though sin would entice and so sin would promise, it cannot satisfy the longing of my soul or your soul. And living apart from God leaves you in a state of, of lostness with no direction, of hunger with no means to fulfill your hunger, of thirst of despair. It cannot satisfy the longing of your soul. But in verse 9 it says, for he satisfies the longing of your soul. As Augustine said it well, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The experience of perpetual exile is that there's no rest, no satisfaction until we find rest in God. We're coming into the red and green season. We had an Advent reading. We have our Christmas decorations arrived. And I don't know about you, but it seems like I've picked up on this sense of so many people have said, this has been such 
a bizarre, trying, frustrating year. Can we just get to Christmas? Can we just get there? Can we just get to the stockings and the, the meals and the eggnog and the, the, the traditions and the songs and the and sleigh rides? I don't know. Does anyone go on sleigh rides still? But still, can we just get to these things? Can we, can we get to the Christmas classic movies and, and gather the family together and watch Elf and the Grinch and... and white Christmas, and do this, and that would just bring some sense of normalcy and comfort. We should be reminded that apart from really fixing our eyes on Jesus, this Advent season is going to be wandering in the desert. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to meet the longing of our souls. It's going to leave us saying, well, New Year's, New Year's, and then Valentine's Day and something, unless in this Advent we are directing our hearts towards the one who came and took on flesh, who entered this fallen world to rescue us from it. And Jesus, in his teaching ministry and in the Gospels, we see him as the one who presents himself as, I'm, I'm the answer to the longing soul that finds itself wandering in a lost desert wasteland. To our lostness, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. To our hunger in John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. To our thirst in John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. To those who are exhausted, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven, twenty eight. Jesus says, I am the one that your soul longs for, that aches for, and only I. But he offers more than just first aid and temporary relief. No, he those who couldn't find a city, he leads them to a city. And it's the great promise of the gospel that what he has begun in our hearts of renewed life, of resurrected life, will reach its culmination in a glorious heavenly city in which the exile would be terminated forever. And there would be no threat of being sent back into to exile. That there's the contrast between the wasteland of the wilderness desert and then the city of the living God. Hebrews 12, 22, the city of the living God that we've been brought to, that we are on our way to, where every need is met from him and in him. And we have to be reminded that the picture of Revelation 21, 22, of that glorious city, it's coming and it's not here yet. And so we need to adjust the longing of our souls fixed on Christ and his city that is to come. So the first picture is the experience of exile wandering in desert. The next one in verses 10 through 16 emphasizes the guilt of the exiles. There it's laid out that they deserve the affliction that has come upon them. And we're given the, the simple picture that sin is like a prison. 
And that sinners are bound in iron. They're in bonds. There's doors of bronze and bars of iron that have locked them up. And we see the wide, intimidating desert picture then gets very small to a dark prison cell. And this is what the psalmist wants us to recall about living apart from God and His ways. And what happens to those who know His Word and rebel against His Word? Look back at Psalm 107, verse 11. Why is it that they are prisoners in affliction and in irons? Well, it tells us, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. This is what the guilt of God's people when they rebel against His Word deserves. And the psalmist's point is that God sends His people to prison and He's the one who breaks them out of it as well. He leads them out of the darkness and He's able to do so. It teaches us and reminds us very clearly that freedom from God's Word leads to the worst sort of bondages. And we are incapable of freeing ourselves. And we are to serve God or we find ourselves imprisoned by sin. But the one who brings this chastisement is the one who's able to break the bars and release his people. So Charles Wesley put it well in the hymn, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The chains are well deserved for those who rebel against God's word. But when they cry to him, he will free them. But then we see the image of sickness in verses 17 through 22. That those who are living apart from God and those who are walking rebellion, it is a sin sickness. It's not merely the guilt of a prisoner who's been locked up. It's the infection of sin that is growing worse and worse. Sin is like becoming deathly ill. And there's no recovery apart from the steadfast love of the Lord intervening and rescuing. Now here, the rebellion is spoken of by the category of being a fool. Psalm 107 verse 17 says, they were fools through their sinful ways. They were fools in their rebellion. Now, when we hear the word fool, we think of someone who's unintelligent, maybe uninformed. They don't know. Someone should explain to that fool that, you know, there's no left turn there or whatever it is. But in Scripture, a fool is a, a different picture. A fool is someone who sees the right and rejects it. It's the fool illustrated in the foolishness of sin and the ingratitude in Romans 1 of seeing all things coming from the Creator's hand, and instead of returning in thanks to Him, worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And this sickness 
This sin sickness is incurable apart from God. It has a, a spiraling, or as Alec Motier put it, a boomerang effect of sin. There in verse 18. That in their sickness, it says, they loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. That they became so foolish and so darkened in their understanding that the very thing that could have possibly helped in their recovery, they despised and loathed. And the sickness became worse and worse. And it's incurable. But they cry out. They cry out. And those who cry out, what does it say that they do? Well, it concludes in verse 22, this section, this image saying that, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in the songs of joy. An entire psalm about redemption. This is the only verse that mentions thanks, uh, sacrifices. But it's tied to the cure for sin. That those who would be cured of their sin sickness, that they would respond in sacrifice. Because those sacrifices of thanksgiving, those sacrifices that would have been brought as the exiles would have been restored to their, their worship, as brought back to Jerusalem, would have pointed them to the once and for all sacrifice that would pay for the guilt. And that through that sacrifice, the cleansing from both the guilt and the corruption of sin would come through Jesus. The guilt of the prisoner and the sickness of the fool it exalts the grace of God because it makes it very clear that this steadfast love is not merely to victims, victims of life in a fallen world, but those who are perpetrators, who are rebels, who are guilty, those who have self-inflicted many wounds, those who have rebelled against God's word. As Derek Kigner has put it, it's a love to the loveless, not merely the helpless. And then the last image we're given is in verses 23 to 32. It's the storm at sea. Here it is laying out again. It, what is the experience of life in exile in a fallen world? Well, it's like facing a storm at sea. And the emphasis in this last image in verses 23 through 32 isn't so much on the guilt of those in exile, but on their littleness. And how, as they are expelled from the land, they try to make their way in the ocean and try to make a new life for themselves. They are like Jonah, who are running from the presence of God. And God sends a storm to remind them of their dependency on Him and that there's no hope in becoming great merchants on the sea. There's no hope in a distant land across the sea. There's only hope in Him, that there's no provision for their souls apart from Him. And so God sends a storm to overwhelm them, to catch them, to get their attention, to show them their utter dependence upon Him. There in verse 27, what does it say? They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. It's a very, very vivid scene of being tossed by the storm 
and sliding around on the, on the deck of a boat or underneath, so much so that you just look like, a, like just sloppy drunk, just can't even put one foot in front of the other and just stumbling. And they're at their wit's end. They're, they're trying to grab a sail. They're trying to fix the mast. They're trying to do this. And there's nothing that they can do. Any, any strategy, any tactic, any way to navigate the storm, they, it's beyond them. God will use and send disruptive storms to remind his people to get their attention. This is what life is like in a fallen world without me. You look like drunken sailors who don't know what to do next. This has been a storm-tossed year, if there ever has been one. And could it be that one of the millions of things God is doing in his sovereign purposes right now is trying to get his people's attention and say, you, you, you're relying on your own wisdom. You're relying on your own ways. You're relying on your own wits. Now, let me bring you to wit's end so that you'd cry to me in desperation, knowing your littleness and your dependence upon me. Those are the four images, all speaking of the same reality. Guilty exiles in desperate need of God in a fallen world. And a God who can send his people into exile and restore them. Who hears their cry. But the psalmist doesn't leave us with those four pictures. He presses us in verses 33 and 42 to continue to reflect upon God's power and his providential dealings in the affairs of men. He wants us to consider, no, God can intervene and does intervene to shake up the comfortable, to get the attention of rebels, and to rescue those who call upon him. In verses 33 through 42, it's, it's a scene of great reversal over and over again is laid out of a fruitful land that becomes a, a barren land, of a barren land that is springing forth with water. In verses 33 to 38, it's places and things we see the reversal. Where there once was, was fresh springs, there's no longer is, and now there is in the desert a spring that arises. And then in verses 39 through 42, you see great reversal in God's doings from peoples and experiences where he's humbling princes and exalting the lowly. And the psalmist wants us to say, God will intervene. He will change the course of human history like this for the sake of the salvation of his people and for the judgment of his, those who will not be redeemed. And it helps us to give thanks in all things. It helps us to hold the blessings of this life loosely in our hand, knowing that the one who gives is the one who takes away, and he does so according to his good character and his never-failing, never-ending, steadfast love towards us. And so what comes and what goes for his people is for our salvation and for our redemption. And it causes us to give thanks and tremble when we see 
the world around us shake. Knowing that this is the Lord of history working all things for the salvation of his bride and for the judgment of his sworn enemies. And the psalmist wants us to think carefully about these things. And so he closes in verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It is a charge to understand and apply the Lord's redeeming love. Wisdom in Scripture is not only knowledge, but it's having knowledge that then you can apply to understanding and living in the world. So three things for us to consider. There's many more, but I draw three things to close with. I want us to think about the steadfast love and affliction. I want us to take note of the pattern that is clearly in this psalm. And we'll close and conclude considering Christ. It makes it clear that God is the one who sends his people into exile. And this is a part of his steadfast love towards them. To redeem them. Psalm 107.12, it says explicitly, Those who rebelled against his word, he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. And then those who were trying to make their way in the sea, it says, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Here it's clearly saying God's chastising of his people is a demonstration of his grace to them. That he will not let them remain in exile, but he will send them there in order to recover them. As Proverbs chapter 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. The Lord's steadfast love in sending affliction for the salvation of his people. But then there's also the pattern that is very clear and it's especially evident in the, the four images of the, the wandering in the wilderness, of the prison, of the sickness, and of the lost at sea. The problem is presented in each of those, those story images. And then the cry of God's people goes forward and goes up to God. Each time, four times it's repeated in the psalm. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. It's a clear message that Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That no one is too lost. And that God is trying to get his people's attention and he is ready to hear their plea for mercy and ready to receive their returning to him. And he hears the cry and each and every boy and girl, man and woman, who comes to their end and says, I'm lost in the desert. I'm imprisoned in my vices and sins. I'm sick with my iniquities. I'm, tor I'm 
torn and tossed in the storms of life. And then the pattern goes to let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Through the exile and the redemption, God's people come to better know his steadfast love. And they better experience it than they would have prior to. They see his wondrous works. And they give him thanks and praise. And finally, we consider Jesus. He is the embodiment of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's clear in his, his ministry how he fed the hungry in the wilderness. He loosed those bound in demonic chains. He healed the sick, raising the paralytic. He calmed the raging sea. He was the one who entered into the exile to rescue the rebels, to bring God's people home. But in doing so, he himself experienced the ultimate exile that none of us have experienced. It's in the cry of dereliction on the cross that there he is, the sacrifice for sin-sick sinners hanging in their place for their sins. He cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the one who perfectly knew from all eternity the intimacy and fellowship and blessed presence of his heavenly Father takes the wrath of God for sin. The ultimate exile. And because of that, our experience of exile changes. We are not yet home to that city of God. We are citizens there. We have a place that He is preparing for us. We are physically absent from that place. But we've been restored to the blessed presence of God. And though while we do not know it in fullness yet, we know it in truth and reality. Because of the sacrifice of the Son and the sending of the Spirit, we are exiles on a journey home. And God is with us, bringing us home. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Would you join me in prayer again? Our great Heavenly Father, forgive us for making so much out of our circumstances and being tempted to think so little of our sin and to question your character as we make our way through this fallen world. We see the great price that was paid for our redemption. So we will be with the redeemed who delight to bring you praise. 
who come joyfully to give our thanks for your good and your steadfast love endures forever. May this be part of our witness in the darkness that we would call rebels home to God and say, come, come and know the one of steadfast love, of never-ending faithfulness. Lord, we delight in your goodness and your mercy, and we sing your praises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.